It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of the confluence of the Snake, Yakima, and Columbia Rivers. It was the age of Benton and Franklin Counties. It was the season of Richland. It was the season of Kennewick. It was the season of Pasco. A tale of Tri Cities. It was the epoch of Hanford. Will not be presented at this time. It was the area code of 509. In order to bring you the following special podcast. It was when Dick's Sporting Goods opened in Columbia Center Mall. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive. A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and Methodists. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. This is just a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. The city of Yakima is not only the self-proclaimed Palm Springs of Washington State, but it's also the hometown of some remarkable and famous people. A partial list includes the late Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. The great short story writer and poet Raymond Carver grew up there. People who were better than us were comfortable. They lived in painted houses with flush toilets, drove cars whose year and make were recognizable. The ones worse off were sorry and didn't work. Their strange cars sat on blocks in dusty yards. The years go by and everything and everyone gets replaced. But this much is still true. I never liked work. My goal was always to be shiftless. I saw the merit in that. I liked the idea of sitting in a chair in front of your house for hours, doing nothing but wearing a hat and drinking cola. What's wrong with that? Drawing on a cigarette from time to time, spitting, making things out of wood with a knife. Where's the harm there? Now and then, calling the dogs to hunt rabbits. Try it sometime. Once in a while, hailing a fat blonde kid like me and saying, "Don't I know you?" Not. What are you going to be when you grow up? My favorite books as a kid were about a boy named Henry Huggins and his dog Ribsy. A young woman had moved to Yakima to be a librarian. Her name was Beverly Cleary. She wasn't an author yet until one day. A little boy, when I was children's librarian in Yakima, who faced me and said, "Where are the books about kids like us?" And he was right; there weren't any kids in, in children's books had. Adventures and went to sea and all that sort of thing, but there was nothing about just ordinary kids playing in their neighborhood. So she decided to create them, and Henry Huggins and Ribsy and lots of other kid characters were born. And by the way, Beverly Cleary has just passed at almost 105 years old, too young. In my opinion, one of the most underrated pop vocalists of all time is also from Yakima. Gary Puckett. Young girl. This guy's got pipes. Get out of my mind. He even named his band after the nearby town of Union Gap. Luckily, perhaps Hump Tulips is not so close. Remember the big guy who played Chief in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? His name was Will Sampson. He grew up in Yakima. And frankly, he could have cashed in on his gum endorsement in that cuckoo movie. Yeah, juicy fruit. And believe it or not, the great stand-up comic Sam Kinison grew up in Yakima. I'm going around the country. I'm trying to get as many people as I can not to get married. Promise never to get married. I've been married, and I'm just trying to help. Jim here has never been married. You never been married? <laughs> What's your name? Michael, well, Michael, if you ever think about getting married, if you ever think you've met the right woman, you want to settle down, change your life, you do me a favor, Mike. Remember this face. The legendary movie stuntman Yakima Canut took his first name from the Yakima River Valley where he grew up. Here he is in action, falling off a cliff. Ah! 
There are a lot of cliffs in Yakima. The Olympic skiers Phil and Steve Mayer are from Yakima. Phil Mayer, winner of the gold medal in men's slalom. Steve Mayer, silver medalist in the same event. And another Olympian named Pete Rademacher was the one-time heavyweight boxer who got knocked out by Floyd Patterson at Sixth Stadium in Seattle back in 1957. The challenger's gloves must be mighty heavy right now. No one expected the fight to last this long. Patterson sends Pete down again. A sharp left and then a right. Referee Lochran is counting over him for the seventh time. This time, it's the knockout. Patterson, still the champion. Well, that sucked. But perhaps the most notable of all, Floyd Paxton was from Yakima. Who is Floyd Paxton? Only the inventor of the quick lock bread clip. Why he didn't get a Nobel Prize is beyond me. I mean, who wants stale bread? Okay, except for you. All right, this has just been a long-winded way of getting to the point. Because there's another Yakima native whose name you might not know, but you should. She was, after all, the very first executive producer of Almost Live. Her name is Dana Dwinell. Time to find out more now about the journey of the remarkable Dana Dwinell. And here she comes from her office in the Palm Springs of Washington State, Yakima. Not far from Ellensburg, the Oxnard of Washington State. What do you do in your office? What 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 kind of things go on in there during a typical Dana Dwinell day? Are you uh, drinking right now? No, I'm just trying. It's so embarrassing. Well, I read a lot of stuff, digital newspapers. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, I take phone calls from my clients. And like, like, like what kind of clients do you have? I mean, you don't need to get too specific, but what would be the range of, uh, do you, do you have restaurant clients, uh, car dealer clients? You know, that's a, um, I do not have, I have had car dealer clients and that's, uh, people who have car dealers, of course, make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a car dealer client. Come on down to Crazy Hub's used car lot. Come on down here. You got to see these cars. Bring everybody you know and come on out here. Ask for my wife too. She's cooking a pot of beans and she'll love to serve some to you. Come on down to Crazy Hub's. We got beans! Couldn't you, couldn't you at least get a car to drive around out I of the deal? You know, I don't uh, know if that's ethical or not, but I, I think you should look. I'm into sure it. there's a way to around that. Sure, sure. Hmm. No, I have I have um, um, a fitness facility. I have um, an attorney. Would you say that people in Yakima are generally more fit or less fit than others? Less. Oh, without a doubt, less. <laughs> Seriously, I think so. Is, so, is the, so, is, so, how many people go to this workout place, this fitness place? <laughs> well, it, it's it's like the best one. It's it's the best is, one. Town is it the only one? No, no. There's all sorts of them. You know, people can have them in the garage now. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so I have that. I have an attorney. I have done some work for our hospital, an accounting firm. I mean, it's kind of a goofy range of stuff. An um, optical. A real estate firm. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. I wish people could see you right now, as I am lucky enough to do. You're looking at the skyline. I'm looking at my, I'm looking at my, my stuff. Okay, that's good. When I was in TV, now I started in TV as a commercial producer. Yep. In other words, I did advertising. That was my entree into television. Let but me ask you, you a question. Stop. T- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, it's fine. Damn it. Did you start that at King, or did you do that somewhere else and then come to King? Yeah, I did it somewhere else too. But no, that that's kind of how I got in into it. I started in radio out of uh, college and, as a disc jockey. But what I really liked doing was commercials, and I try I like to make funny commercials. At least yeah, I thought they were, were funny. And, awesome. And so I then I decided, uh, do I really want to stay in radio? Because all these guys I see coming 
They're nomadic. They're 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 kind of messed up. They smoke a lot. They drink too much. Is that the life I want for myself? And I said, yes, damn it. I- <laughs> chug a look, chug a look. Make you want to holler, holler, ho. Find your tummy, don't you know. Chug a look, chug a look, chug a look, chug a look. So I thought, but I, so I thought maybe I should go work for an advertising agency because I like doing ads. I never did that. I got some offers, but I never went that direction. But so I got hired at King as a commercial producer. But I was thinking about this the other day. If you're not in commercial production at, at, at a TV station, if you're in programming or if you're in a public service uh, section of the station or whatever, you don't like commercial people you don't like people that do advertising it wouldn't that be fair when you in other words when you were at king as a a program person a production person you didn't much like the sales department did you that would be right yes nobody likes the sales department unless you're in the sales department well and why do you suppose that is well because uh you're viewed as a commodity which you are and they're trying to make you you know, they're trying everything is about, you know, trying to peddle some advertiser onto you and you, and you, there's pushback and well, that. And also, if the sales department says to the programming department, that show isn't selling, your show is vulnerable. And so yeah. you guys, they're, they're telling kill, you you're a failure. Kill the messenger. That's what I say. Yeah. yeah. No, I get that. So that's why I thought it was interesting that now here you are in advertising, doing the thing that was anathema to you when you first got into uh, your professional life? Well, the reason is, in fact, if you step back. How about here? I'm stepping back. Okay. How doing programming in television and advertising, they actually are doing the same thing. They're manipulating the audience. And that's. Oh, no, I never did that. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, I wouldn't think of that. No. No, I, Dana, do not try to paint me uh, with that big tarry brush that you're <laughs> trying to wield there. No, 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 you're right. You're right. Of course, but everything is, isn't it? Really? Isn't it the car dealer you talked about? He's trying oh, to. Remember, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Even nonprofits, nonprofits can't, you know, they're never going to get the money that they need to do their good work if they can't manipulate an audience to give them money. So you're saying that doing good works is a loser's game. I am not saying okay. that. Okay. See, I misinterpreted it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about where you grew up uh, because you're right back in your hometown again. How did you land there? It's sort of like a boomerang, a bad boomerang that, you know, kind of comes back unexpected and late. She got me like a boomerang. So I came back here um, before. In the 90s? She got me like a boomerang. It's too long of a story. I'm actually living in a house that I grew up in. I mean, I, I lived in this house and I left to go to the University of Washington and then years later, I'm, I've returned and am now sleeping in my parents' room. Are they in there too? Nope. Okay. Uh, I guess I am kind of making you tell the story backwards. So let's, let's go to childhood there. You grew up, you were born and raised in Yakima. You went to schools there. Yes. High school there. Yes. And then uh, in high school, did you already have a bent toward maybe getting into television? No, I had no clue. In fact, when I went to college, I really didn't realize until like my sophomore year that I was supposed to come out of college with like a job and maybe even a career. Mm -hmm. And and because all the girls and women that I was around, all they wanted to do was get husbands. And that was not like something that I was really interested in at the time. And I Oh, I'm going to have to work. So what will I do? And some lady comes up to me at a cocktail party here in Yakima at Christmas time and said, Dana, I think you should consider uh, going into television. And I would laughed at her and I said, I couldn't be on TV. And she wisely straightened me out and said, no, no, I didn't mean on TV. She meant do TV. Like Mary Tyler Moore. What religion are you? Uh, Mr. Grant, I don't quite know how to say this, but uh, you're not allowed to ask that when someone's applying for a job. <laughs> it's against the law. Would you think I was violating your civil rights if I asked if you're married? Presbyterian. <laughs> and I went, ooh, 
I like bossing people around. That sounds good. <laughs> so I actually went back and checked out the School of Communications at the University of Washington, which yeah, very good school at the time. Yeah, you had to apply to get in, and was yeah. and um, so I applied and got in, and I think I think Rob Weller was in there, and Rob um, Weller for people who don't know is credited with inventing the wave. Got to get it to turn three. We're going to have a record if they can make it all the way around. They would break the record by some 50,000 fans. And they have done it, folks. Here they come. And also former host of entertainment tonight. Yeah, that's right. He was the first host, uh, first co-host. Maybe, maybe yeah. one of them. Mm-hmm. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Weller. And I'm Mary Hart. Uh, also, former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice was in the School of Communications, I believe. He uh, was the second co-host of entertainment tonight. A lot, people, <laughs> a lot of people forget that. Housing is one of the most critical needs facing Seattle. I'm Norm Rice. And I'm Mary Hart. <laughs> You know what? When you laughed uh, at uh, Almost Live, that was like the, an imprimatur. It was like, okay, that's a pretty good joke. Not that that one was, but I'm just saying, no, your laugh no. was uh, about as good as uh, somebody handing you a check. <laughs> well, I you think have, you have what they call a hearty laugh. I have no laugh. idea. I have never really heard myself laugh, so I really don't know. Well, you're missing something. I'll tell you that. So you're at the UW. You've decided to major in communications in broadcasting. I majored in communications, television production, and and then also in advertising. Oh, you Um, did? I didn't know you had an advertising background. Yeah, yeah. Did they call it that or did they call it marketing? No, yeah, it was called advertising. And I thought that I would be good at that because I, I considered myself a pretty good writer. I also thought, especially the short form, and I also thought I was clever. Um, and you are. Thank you. Well, anyway, I got an F in one of my classes and I think it was a cop. It wasn't a copywriting class. It was, um, a script writing class and the professor's name was Pat Cranston and she, not to be confused with the Cranston's famous actor guy. Brian Cranston. Yeah. She worked at, I think she worked at Cole and Weber. She gave me a big fat F on my script. And I was devastated, and I don't think I could have graduated with that F, so I went and talked to her, and I said, I just have to tell you, my script writing skills might be bad, but what I'm telling you is a true story, and so I got a a C-. minus. I thought you were going to say that you went and said, let me try it again. Give me another shot. Nope, nope. Yeah. She didn't want to have anything more to do with me, and I didn't want to have anything more to do with her, so all I had to do was tell her that the story was true, which it was. Is it something you could tell us? No, I can't actually. <laughs> is it is it obscene? No, but I really can't. Really, you really can't. Okay. Yeah. No. Well, I'm afraid we're going to send some people <laughs> over to your office, and we're going to get it out of you. Okay. This is probably the first and only time I've kept a secret in my entire life. But anyway, she entered the chamber fearfully. Dana knew she shouldn't be there. And yet, some force compelled her forward. As she came around the final turn, there, in the gloom, she could see it. A sarcophagus. Again, she knew she should turn back, and yet, she couldn't. She approached the sarcophagus fearfully, put her hands on the lid, and lifted it. Inside, a human form, a woman, and the corpse seemed to be speaking, seemed to be trying to utter some words, but they were faint. Dana could scarcely hear them, so she lowered her head closer, tilted her ear closer 
so she could hear the words of the woman in the sarcophagus who said I'm Mary Hart <laughs> okay I'm sorry let's move on so now I'm in the, at the U in advertising and TV. Okay, so so you're graduating, you got the degree, and if you're like me, you realize it's just about as valuable as uh, any other piece of paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Including a paper towel. Well, because uh, and- <laughs> the hard work comes in trying to make it go somewhere and find a gig. Because you think, my God, I'm uh, going to set the world on fire. I know I did. And a friend of mine literally did set the world on fire. I had no idea. I had no, they don't prepare you for the real world and how to go out and, and get a job and what, what's necessary. There, I had none of that. And oh, it was, gosh, it was just awful. But fortunately, I had a family connection at King TV. My dad's cousin. Mm-hmm. Clara Stenstrom. I remember Clara very well. Dorothy, she was Dorothy Bullitt's like administrative assistant forever. Yeah, yeah. And so I told her I was looking for a job in television or advertising. Here's what I remember about Mrs. Bullitt's office and your and your uh, your your cousin. Uh, if as soon as you approached the office, there would be a cloud of smoke coming out. Yeah. Of it. <laughs> Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Puff, 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 and if you smoke yourself to death. Tell St. Peter at the Golden Gate that you hates to make him wait, but you just gotta have another cigarette. Those two ladies were chimneys, aren't they? Yeah, they, that was okay to, to do that in those days. I mean, you could do it, didn't have to go outside and, no, and be shamed I know. for it. So no. she was your in, but you still had to interview. How did that go? Um, you know, I, I cannot for the life of me remember how it was that maybe she told me that the production department was looking for a production assistant, a part-time production assistant. And uh, I always love the I always love the term part-time. Yeah. Because isn't everything in life part-time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Temporary. Think about it. Yeah. Well, here's how bad it was. Again, so naive, so unprepared, so so bad um i went to interview for this the job of of my career in tv wearing what i was going to wear at beer hall that i worked in to get money and so So you worked you worked at a tavern part-time i did i worked at jilly's east tavern just um just south of the mont lake yeah I remember where Jilly's was. And, so that was that uh, was your that was your actual gig where you're in between jobs, as it were. Correct. Train. Yeah. So you go in in your mini skirt. Uh, yeah. Well, it was a halter top. Let's just say that, and, <laughs> and like palazzo pants, which you don't have to know what they are. That's fantastic. And oh my word! So anyway, so I interview and. um I do get the job, and I'm just not exactly sure what it was, but maybe it was my charm and enthusiasm. Yeah, maybe it was that. <laughs> and uh, God, I wish I'd have thought of, of interviewing in a halter top. I could have gotten the king a lot quicker, maybe. Yeah. Let, like, me, write, let like, me write that uh, down. Like Jim Carrey. You know, what, yeah. you know, I think of men in halter tops. I think of Jim Carrey. Um, so I was a part-time production assistant on the morning show which I cannot even remember the name of it, but it was Seattle a, Today, right? No, it was called something with Norm Bobro, and he was a oh yeah 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 Norm a disc jockey, and he was a jazz aficionado. It, yeah, he was a jazz impresario. From Seattle to all the trains that run the rails and all the planes that fly the skies, here's the only news of its kind, brought to you by that man about Seattle, my very good friend Norm Bobro, or as they say among men of distinction. If you want to hold on to your woman and never lose her, all you have to do is buy your clothes from that fine men's store, the Harvard Shop in downtown Seattle. I got to know Norm a, a little bit. Yeah, I don't was, know. Did he play an instrument? I think he yeah. did. Yeah, he did. Uh, I, I first got to meet Norm Bobro. I'd heard of him for years, but then I first met him. He was playing in a, a combo or a trio or a quartet. I can't remember. At a fundraiser for Mike James, King TV's Mike James, who was running for the Senate, I think, at the time. 
Oh, wow. And so this was a fundraiser, and I said, hey, that guy, I think he was playing the clarinet or something like that. I, okay. I said, I, I, that's Norm Pabro. So I went and introduced myself, and that's how I got to know him. Mike, by the way, did not get elected. <laughs> Reporting for King 5 News, Mike James and Gene Anderson. This, I mean, I, this is just like the early days of television. I mean, you just sat people in front of a camera, yep. and that was that. And then 10 minutes later, you said, okay, time to go to a break. And, I mean, and it was a live show. It wasn't taped. And Norm was not um, a morning person. We can, I can just say that. One of my jobs was to call and make sure he was up so that he would get to the station in time to do the show. Yeah, because I think he kept real late nights like you would yeah. expect of a jazz club yes, guy. Yes, that yeah. is absolutely true. And he would get lost in his questions. And uh, But anyway, so he eventually, I think, got fired. And he was devastated. I mean, I can remember, I mean, he was literally crying. I remember him in the op. It was and I'm, you know, I'm, what am I supposed to do? Hey, can I tell you a story speaking of that? This speaks to my uh, bias at the time. I was a younger man. Whoever says, I was an older man at the time. Yeah. But, but uh, I, I, w- I was working at a different TV station, and I was given the task of firing three people. <gasps> and I didn't, and I, I'd never fired anybody before, and I was in charge of this department. And so I had to fire two guys and a woman. And so I'm mostly dreading firing the woman. I just think, oh, boy, here it comes. I'm going to get tears. I'm going to be assailed with uh, hatred and vitriol, and it's just it's going to be so ugly. Entirely the opposite happened. And one of the guys, not only did he start crying, but he actually came. He went to his knees and grabbed me around my ankles, begging me, please, please, don't. Don't fire me. And uh, it just was so so different from what I was expecting. And then when the and then when I have to fire the woman, I remember her name was Sherry. Sherry, Sherry, I, I have to fire her. I said, I'm Sherry. I'm really sorry, but I have to let you go. I said, okay. Well, I I don't envy you having to do that, but uh, you know, I'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And she was so cool. That taught me a huge lesson about not only expectations about what I thought was the difference between men and women. She was stoic and, and the, the two guys, the two guys were quivering globs of jello. Just, well, to, just to uh, corroborate that I lived that situation myself in Philadelphia. When I was the producer of the morning show in Philadelphia, yep. get back to that, which comes after almost live. And we'll get which to that. Comes after almost live. Um, the, the program director, his name was Jerry Eaton. And, uh, he called myself and the host of the show in to his office. Now there had been, of course, a lot of scuttlebutt and rumors and conspiracy theories and things like that going yeah. around that the show, you know, might be canceled that they were going to fill it with syndicated stuff because it was less expensive. And so I'm there with the host of the show who has wanted to be a talk show host forever. He actually was the news anchor and Jerry gives us the bad news and the news anchor exploded. He's Italian. He absolutely exploded. First it was just screaming, yelling blue, blue streak and then tears. And I'm sitting there <laughs> and I'm not, I don't say a word. And then I asked, you know, a couple of questions. So all of these rumors about the syndicated show, that was all true. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's the time frame and blah, 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 blah. And still the Italians running around. Oh, he must have left the office. I think he stormed out. And Jerry Eaton looked at me and he said, I never expected it to be like this. I really thought you would fall apart. And the other guy, you know. Uh, isn't that something? Yeah. 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 Well, and he said, I'm, I'm impressed. And I said, well, there's. Getting emotional is not going to serve anybody. So I, I guess I always knew that when I, I got fired more times than a human cannonball, as I like <laughs> to say. But I just, I never, it never got me. I mean, I'm inside. I'm upset, but I'm not going to let them see that, and I'm not right. going to get because it doesn't do any good. Do you know anybody that started weeping and carrying on, and then said, "You know what? I've changed my mind. I'm not going to fire you. In fact, I'm going to promote <laughs> <That's> you." <laughs> just doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. 
<laughs> so you got this production job at King. You were doing a morning show. They fire the host of that morning show. Is the or did they immediately get a new host? Did you think the show was done and, and that you were going to be on the street too? Or they, what? yes, they, they'd had a plan and they had hired um, Shirley Hudson, and mm-hmm. I had done something at King before. It's yeah, five to ten, I believe. Anyway, and they paired her up with Cliff Lance, who was the big money movie guy. Yeah. And they called it, no, that's not right either. I'm sorry. They hired a guy from Minneapolis, Steve Edelman, and he comes in and he knew all about Phil, Phil Donahue. And he said, you should produce a local talk show like Phil Donahue with a studio audience and blah, 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 blah. And it was a hit. Hmm. Right off, right off the bat, huh? Pretty much right off the bat. And because Steve really knew what he was a very good producer. He's still producing syndicated stuff now. And he told, you know, he told everybody how to do all this. And I mean, for all I know, he helped design the set. And, um, and that know, was the show that became Seattle like that. today, right? It went, yeah. Yeah. I, and he, he, I, I was the only staff. There was a producer who was Milt Hughes and myself. And Steve said to me one day, he said, you know, you're working really hard. You, you should really be called the um, associate producer. And I went, okay. I never officially was, you know, given that title. I just assumed the title. Yeah, and you don't get any more money, but you get the title, no. so that no. helps. Yeah, put it okay. on my business cards, everything. It was it was just great. Well, I remember when I first came to King, Seattle Today was in full swing, and you guys would, you were on at 9 in the morning, 9 yep. to 10, and you'd get the, any celebrity that was in town would be on the show. And it, it was really, it was a fun show. There was a live audience in the morning. They were enthusiastic. Yep. Cliff was a great host. The fun of doing this show was probably a function of just the the excitement of, of knowing that you're live. You know, it's fun slash great satisfaction. And he could play uh, piano and guitar. And, I mean, Shirley was... Very affable. Our next two guests are familiar to you from Seattle. They happen to live part of the time in Seattle and some of the time in Honolulu. So the show was going full tilt boogie for a while. And at the time, I think this was like 1980, 81, King was uh, generally regarded as as the station to belong to, the, the station to work for if you wanted to get into local programming because they did a buttload of local shows. They really, show, they really did. They really did. They did a lot of, a lot of specials. Yeah, public service. Uh, yeah, a lot of documentaries. I mean, they were just doing everything. It was the place to be, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, and then it it, it started uh, to diminish a bit through the years, but then a new director, a program director, comes in, who wants to kind of take the uh, the basic legacy of that local programming that King was already famous for, and try yet another new approach to a show that nobody had done like that in a local market before, at least to his mind. His name was Bob Jones. Just Jones, I guess. That's all. And uh, so tell us about his ideas and, and how Almost Live was born. Well, you know, Bob comes in and he is... Uh, He's replacing his predecessor who'd been there for a long, long time and knew he he had to establish, you know, make a, make a mark right away. And, um, yeah. yeah. So he brought in, he was also the one responsible for bringing in a PM Magazine franchise as well. It's an all-new evening magazine for Monday, May 1st. Now, here's your host, John Curley. Evening, everyone. Welcome to the show. But he wanted to do a comedy show. And you actually were at one point, I think somebody told me this. I didn't see that they did one or two pilots. I saw. They did two pilots. And I wasn't involved in any of that at that time. Neither was I. Doing those dumb commercials uh, over (laughs) in the sales department. And then later I got into King's marketing department and did, you know, commercials essentially. For the news, Jeepers yeah. and Tony Ventrala, people like that. The funny thing about sports scores, they always seem different. One might be 84 to 71, but the next one could be 92, 78, or maybe 83, 75. Now, I've been in the sports business for a while now, and one score sticks out in my mind, 63 to 61. 
And I know a lot of other people who feel the same way. Tony Ventrella, unconventional, unpredictable. Weeknights at 11 from New Center 5. I was still in advertising, but I took an inordinate amount of interest in what was going on, especially if they were talking about a comedy show. Yeah. And I was interested as well. And my, I think my interest was I had been, I'm going to say languishing, but I had been doing that morning show ad nauseum and, and also not been promoted and was, was looking for some, something to hang, you know, to, to get me myself yeah. out of that pile. And so I had talked to Bob about that and um he asked me to watch the I don't know I watched some of the taping and then I watched the playback of I believe the second pilot and I just told him it was I said it was fake it wasn't funny um I think they even had an audience but it the host was was not connecting with anything and I remember that at least one of the attempted hosts was a guy out of Washington, D.C. I don't know why I remember that. I think he that's was, the guy that I watched. He was a stand-up comic. And uh, why they never thought, well, why don't we get a local comic to come in here? It's a local show. Let's uh, put our money where our mouth is. Maybe they just thought nobody was qualified. I don't know. but I actually think that they didn't think that there was enough funny stuff that would be local that it would work, that it was, they were just going to do their little mini version of the Tonight Show or something. Mm -hmm. And they, it, it was, it was bad. And then somehow or another, Ross got attached to this project. And then I got attached to the project. So I think the thinking at King at the time was, look, if we want comedy, we've already got Gene Anderson. Okay. Let's bring a guy in from Washington D.C. and then oh, then they changed their mind. Yeah, and then but I, Ross, you know, was doing stand-up comedy. He he wasn't a, a ready-made TV host yet. He, he probably he was. Comedy. I bet you he was the one who won the local laugh-off thing, whatever yeah, the fuck that yeah, was. Comedy competition. Yeah. I spent a depressing day reading women's magazines. <laughs> See, that's how you want to understand women, guys. Yeah, you have to read those magazines. Because then you'll understand why women are so great at relationships. Every month they're forced to take all these pop quizzes in there. Am I happy? Is he happy? Does my life suck? I think it does. That's why we're behind, guys. We don't have quizzes in our magazines, do we? We, we, A lot of times we don't even have words. (laughs) We we have big, glossy pictures. That's what we have. That's a quiz we can pass. Does a girl look good naked? Yep. That's for sure. He had made, but I remember seeing him on uh, uh, television uh, on another talk show, like one out of Canada or something like that. He was a guest, but I thought, man, he he really handles himself well. He looks like he looks like the host of a TV show. He conducting yeah. himself like that. He's yeah. very poised. This is yeah, a guy they got to look at. I I'm not taking credit for, it, but I remember mentioning it to uh, Bob Jones. I said, oh. yeah, take a look at this guy. He's pretty good. So that happened. And good. However, it was, uh, Ross got attached to the project and Bob made me the executive producer because yes. he, he needed somebody who knew television to try to wrangle the hooligans who didn't know anything about television. So Ross is there and his sidekick, Jim Sharp. And I don't know, Mike Noon was around a lot, but he was in and out. Yeah, Mike Noon was a, is, was a stand-up comic, but he, who played funny songs on his guitar. Yeah. Very good, very good at what he did and. Very laconic, very laconic. That's mm-hmm. the best word for it. Let him. me look that up. Siri, what does laconic mean? Laconic means of a person's speech or style of writing, mm-hmm. using very few words. Why did it take so many words for her to tell us I was that? working in front of a band a while ago. I had this big orchestra behind me. I looked back in the horn section, and the guy was playing a rubber horn. I had never seen one before. It was just amazing. And he was playing safe sax. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, yeah, he was... Uh, but he, then he, uh, years later, then he did most of his work on uh, cruise ships. He'd sail all over the world. And he said, I love the gig because, you know, you work a couple days a week. 
you may be at sea for a week to 10 days and you don't have to work that much and get to screw around and they pay you well. And it was a great life, good food. And today he is living in Thailand and uh, he's married a Thai woman and he doesn't perform anymore, but he seems as happy as he can be. But anyway, back to this show. So you're thrust into this. Yeah. Position. Did you, uh, were you eager to do it or did, did you have? Yeah, I was thrilled to death. I was thrilled to death to finally get promoted to, you know, having a, a show and being, as they call them now, a showrunner. But it, you know, I didn't know. And, um, my job was, okay, we're going to fill a half hour once a week and I'm, you know, we're going to get it, time the show in and out and, yeah. uh, what goes on in the middle. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> was it just half an hour when it began? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. Yes. See, I, that's all lost, uh, in some sort of haze with me, but I remember that there certainly was a time when it was an hour long. Yeah. And it was really tough to fill an hour, obviously. They yeah, were all I, I do. And, that's and why un- we needed more yeah, free people. An unenviable time period across the way from Ken Schramm and a show called Town Hall on Como TV, right, which was right. a kind of a public appearance. On Sundays. On Sundays, which also had a live audience. And Ken was very, uh, very good. And they'd talk about issues and things. I play for a rock band called Sleaze. I'm the only one that has the right to rate, you know, my album. You don't have it. Sally, why, why music? Why not tackle books? Why not rate books in, instead of music albums? That's that that hasn't been a concern of ours. Maybe that's something. But why isn't it a concern? I guess that's what I'm asking. Why isn't it what generated the concern with the music as opposed to because of our young children. Our young children were listening to these records and we didn't know what they were listening to. But they they were just clobbering almost live. Yeah. As you would expect most new programs would uh would have trouble finding audiences. Yeah, and so as the sales department was not a fan. Hmm. Imagine that. So but, that, and, and so you're the lightning rod in a way for that because Ross and Jim Sharp and those people, they, they're not really employees of the station. They come no. in and do their gig. But so you're, you're the person who's there, the sales department or the station management is going to come and talk to if they're not. Everybody's, everybody's freelance and, um, no, you know, nobody had done, it was sort of like throwing spaghetti on the wall. If something stuck, if it was funny, we would try it. And I mean, what the heck? To cook great spaghetti with meat sauce, an Italian cook always starts with fresh pasta. Yeah, it was tough. I, I, I think it was really tough on everybody to try to get our equilibrium and our footing, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it was sort of cultish really from the very beginning. Even yeah. though we didn't have an audience, we got a lot, a lot of, well, not me, but, Ross and Jim and anybody who was visible got a lot of positive feedback being out in the public about, you know, yay and da 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 da. So yeah. Yeah. It, was it, was, it was very cool. Even though, you know, the show had a, had a rocky start, why wouldn't it? There was no precedent for it. Uh, you right. know, I mean, when you did Seattle Today, for example, well, we, we did another show sort of like it previously and, and, yeah. and and if we do a magazine type show, well, there's other magazine shows around the country. We've got a blueprint for how to do that. But a local comedy show that that was new ground. It was new ground, and it was mostly really funny. I mean, no matter what, even if it wasn't a strictly a local thing, it was still funny because Ross and Jim were good writers, and they had come up with new material. I've got an idea. We'll put on a show. There's an old studio down the hall. We can do jokes. What do you say? Almost live with Ross Schaefer, Sundays at 6 on Television Channel 5. Then um, John Keister got hired, and he brought in a completely new element, which opened up a whole new thing. Welcome to the Urban Sportsman. Today we will be hunting the street mine. Once a comparatively rare species, the street mime has blossomed in recent years to become an urban pest. And I think it became even more intensely local. With right, and we started doing videos. Yep. Yeah, the show uh, the show just changed. You, I thought, were put in a tough position for anybody starting a brand new show like that and not given any kind of budget. 
Well, that was hard. the hardest part. That was really, truly the hardest part was having to constantly go back to these people who were loyally committing their t- talent to making the show as good as it could be. I mean, that includes, you know, the f- everybody, freelance bit writers, uh, the band, uh, everybody and say, I, we, there's no money here. I mean, what you're, we're paying you scale minimum. Yeah. And, you know, you can't live on that. And I, I was, I think most people who did, who went for it though, realized that it was a kind of, uh, it was like going to school. It was something you, you could not, uh, you couldn't acquire most any place else. I think most people viewed it that way. Well, they didn't. It wasn't about the money. Well, no, you got to fight for your money. But I mean, (laughs) for you, you have to go to station management and then they're going to say to you, well, why don't you guys start getting some ratings and then maybe we'll talk more money. But until yeah. that happens, hey, the coffers are empty. Yeah, it was it was horrible. So uh, you you do that for a spell and you do a great job. And uh, and then guys like me and a few other folks started sticking their head in the door because uh, I, I remember, I can't remember who, but I remember that someone said, hey, Cashman, they, that show is a hungry animal and it needs a lot of food. So if you got anything... <laughs> that you want to contribute, you should do it, man, because they, they need stuff. So I started, uh, you know, doing little things, and I would come on and do some live bits and things, all none of them memorable. But I oh I, I landed on one bit. It was in the – I give the credit to you for helping me shape that bit. It was. It, that it, is my favorite all-time – Know what I'm going to say, Sluggy. Sluggy. Yeah. Sluggy! It was it was a it was an okay bit. It, it played very well, but I had gotten the idea. I'd seen a Woody Allen stand-up video. I was a little boy. I wanted a dog desperately, and we had no money. I was a tiny kid, and my parents couldn't get me a dog because we just didn't have the money. So they got me instead of a dog. They told me it was a dog. They got me an ant. And I didn't know any better, you know. I thought it was a dog. I was a dumb kid. I called it Spot. I trained it, you know. I'm coming home late one night, and Sheldon Finkelstein tried to bully me. Spot was with me. And I said, Kill! And Sheldon stepped on my dog. And I, so I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'll have, a, I'll have a kid, and he's got an ant for a pet. I mean, I wasn't even thinking that I could try something more original. Uh, but the, I, knew, I just knew I wanted it to be like a, a, like a takeoff of Lassie or something like that. Right, right, right. Or, overly so sentimental and corny. I know, it's great. And then you, you are the one who said, no, it shouldn't be an ant. Why don't you make it something that is in, you know, part of the Northwest, like, uh, like a slug. That's brilliant. Who'd want a slug for a pet anyway? It's disgusting. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, kids have ant farms, but nobody wants to, to have a slug around so the house. So that, that, then it just, then it just lit up a fire under me and I said, oh yeah, that's what we'll do. It'll be a slug. Bob, Bob. Yeah, what is it, Timmy? I think Sluggy's sick. <laughs> Rabish. <laughs> Get my gun, boy! No! <laughs> well, it was an absolute home run and, you know, it, so you were a you were a contributor. You who was the photographer for you then? Mike Boydston. So there, yeah. Yeah, Mike Boydston. And uh, I think I've told this story on another podcast, but we I I wanted to get a certain looking kind of kid, and uh, so I went through a talent book and and I found a kid. I said, "This is the kid." He he had round glasses. Yeah, he had kind of bucky teeth and red hair and. He just, yep. I, I think this is the, this kid's going to be perfect for this if he can talk. So I hire him and then he shows up at the station and his mom is with him. Not surprisingly, he's only like eight or nine years old. 
And I remember thinking, Jesus, you know, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do with this bit, but I do know I'm going to have the kid fall down a hill and break his leg. And then he's going to ask Sluggy to go get help. Okay. And, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to send this kid through some physical stuff. Is it Timmy? Is it his leg? His fibula? Let's go. And I just thought, man, I, if I, his mom comes along, she's going to put the kibosh on a lot of the things that I have in mind here. So I remember making an excuse that we, we could not, we're really sorry, we can't take you with us. We've got a limited amount of of uh, room in our van. We've got all our camera equipment and stuff in there. She said, well, why don't I just follow you in my car? No, I don't think that would be a, a good idea either. We, re- I don't remember how I shook her off, but we did. Wow. And, uh, and, and, and I thought later, I thought, why would a mom let her adorable little <laughs> eight or nine year old kid go off with this idiot cashman and this even scarier looking cameraman, Mike Boyston yeah. alone? Yeah. And I don't even know where they're going, but she did. And it well, worked it's out history. Really well. How did you take So what did you say to this darling little kid about like rolling down the hill? No, he was fine with it. And oh. we were going to put slime all over his face and stuff <laughs> like that. Right. I, I just knew his mom might not be down with it, but I, I only explained a bit of the bit to her. Oh, um, it was, it was, it was so great. Yeah, it was good. Well, anyway, I give you credit for coming up with the well, slug I, idea. I don't it? remember that, but that, that was, whatever. well, that's because you're so dang humble. This classic. So why did you leave a show like Almost Live? Bob Jones did not exactly make his mark in the way he wanted to make his mark, and he was fired. You're fired! He goes to Philadelphia, and I am heading into season three of Almost Live, and I've been doing contract negotiations with everybody. This is extremely unpleasant and bob calls me on the phone and says i'm gonna fire the morning show producer i'd like you to come and take over the morning show and i said okay this is in philadelphia again this is in philadelphia didn't ask the husband didn't ask just i remember i was in the conference room under the table with the phone like i'm hiding there's a big you know window wall what the hell but i'm sitting there under the table talking i said okay i'll go and you didn't tell your husband you'd taken the gig nope you just said get in the truck we're moving to the streets of philadelphia when you got to Philadelphia, did you run up those steps like Sylvester Stallone and throw your arms up in the air and say, Hey, Philadelphia, Dana Fournell is here! I looked at those steps mm-hmm. from the bottom and I looked up. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was it. That's disappointing. Philadelphia is an incredible city. I actually really loved, uh, I was there about three years. And uh, then, of course, I referenced back the guy, Jerry Eaton, firing, the, you know, the host and all that. You're fired! Yeah, yeah. Uh, I loved it. I, we eventually bought a house out in the suburbs, and you take the train into the town just like you would in New York or Chicago or anywhere else. And I, I just, I just loved it. Well, think about it, this gal, this little girl from little yeah. burg called Yakima. And now you're in like the fourth or fifth biggest yeah. city yeah. in the United States. That's pretty heady. You must have had trouble well, believing it, that and, you were doing you know, that. It either gets worse or gets better. So eventually down the road in the, my career, up in Philadelphia, I was working for um, Westinghouse Group W. And Group W was a very large production company, and they had the evening fr- evening magazine franchise, and the people are talking franchise for the morning show. And so we would have Group W confabs, like in New York, and we had one in Pittsburgh, and I don't know, and pe- we would all go. But then later on, after I had left Group W, and I was actually literally back in Yakima, I got hired again by Group W people down in L.A. to do, you know, pilots. And one of the pilots that I worked on 
was Jenny Jones. What do you want to say to, to kids who are being bullied right now? There is hope. What I say is for every caterpillar, there is a butterfly, and this one's flying. On the next Jenny Jones. That was very successful, wasn't it? I think so. I worked <laughs> on the pilot with a King guy who was a director at King, and he and I worked on that, but everybody else around had Group W affiliation, and then, but it was a Warner Brothers project. So long story short is they did a, we did some pilots, and then they picked up the show out of, they were going to run it for three months out of Las Vegas, and I went and did that. Dana, Las Vegas. <laughs> Dana, Las Vegas. And then, um, the show went to Chicago, and I went, I don't really want to go to Chicago. Plus, my husband's still back home in Yakima. and uh, At least you think that's where he is, because he's well, confused I, yeah, now. It is. <laughs> you I, don't even tell him where I had going. to call him from Chicago. I did go to Chicago. I said, I'm going to go for two months to fill in for a person that they're waiting for. They started saying, well, what do you think is wrong here? And I said, well... How much time do you have? And then I, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they were just gobsmacked that this little know-nothing was spitting out all this stuff that was wrong with the show. And they said, well, we think you should be here for the rest of the season, and this is the amount of money we'll pay you. So I had to call my husband and say, I'm not coming home. I knew you'd understand, Job. So tired, tired. And he said, how much money are they paying you? Oh, okay, you don't yeah, have to come that was, that, yeah. Just send a check yeah. That was a whole nother experience that, again, I would have never had had I stayed yeah, at King. That's so true. It's so true. You had to move on. But now, as we said, that long journey to all these different stops along the way, what what brought you home again? Um, Make something up. I had gone to San Francisco for a while after Philadelphia, and my father passed away. That's tough. And I couldn't get hired at a TV station in Seattle where I was at the time to save my life. I was unemployed for 18 months. When you'd go to interview, like, let's say, at Cairo, and you're going through your resume. And and so, uh, oh, oh, I I see here you, you produce that almost live show. Well, you know, we'll let you know if we have anything open up. <laughs> I actually, uh, I'm not exactly sure what had happened. I think the problem really was more of an economic thing. Yeah. TV stations that at that time were dumping local programming because it was too expensive. Just like the reason my station in Philadelphia dumped the, the morning show is it was too expensive to hire bodies and I could buy Geraldo for a lot cheaper. And who wouldn't want Geraldo? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> That's, I get it. People at King would at least, you know, take my phone calls and I could go in and I'd have meetings. But even though they started a couple shows during that almost two year period while I was there, they just didn't want me. Well, you know, I, I, I usually wrap these things up by asking people and you've already kind of answered this question. That I ask people, would you be where you are now or where you went uh, along the course of your career if it hadn't been for your beginnings at Almost Live? What say you? I would not have been anywhere close to. No, Almost Live was so ahead of its time that I think almost anybody who had anything to do with it used it as a springboard to get to wherever it is they wanted to go. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's quite a list from Bill Nye to Joel McHale to Keister, uh, Ross Schaefer. Jim Sharp was a vice president at Comedy Central. Um, yeah. And the list goes on and on. Uh, Tracy Conway, yeah. extraordinary keynote speaker, and Nancy Guppy still doing TV in Seattle. Yeah, it uh, it was, uh, but it was like, as I said earlier, it was like a chance to go to school. And where every day, Keister would take me out back and beat me up. Yes. And it was a school where, guess what? You're you're supposed to goof off. That's the idea of it, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you uh, you were... It was wonderful. It was really wonderful. Now, it was really horrible for the two and some years that I was there trying to, you know, make everybody happy, which, of course, that's a stupid thing to do. But um, but I learned a, a lot, a lot, a lot. And it did it did 
springboard me out of Seattle and into some other markets. And there you go. Bob Nelson was uh, nominated for an Academy Award for yep. a movie he wrote. He's written a lot of other stuff. He's directed movies. He's, he's a very talented he, writer. He's amazing. And he's worked for Pixar and all kinds of things. When it's all said and done, Bob always says the most fun I ever had was when I was working at Almost Live, bar none. And I think yep. that's true of just about everybody. Like you said, maybe we didn't appreciate it as much as we should have when we were there, but we sure do now and realize how yeah. lucky we were. We were very lucky. Dana, thank you. Take care of yourself and go find yourself a car dealer advertiser. <laughs> The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast, produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman. Chris Cashman.